Welcome to Don't Give Up on Testicular Cancer, where cancer survivors, caregivers, and others touched by cancer share their stories. The Max Mallory Foundation presents this podcast in honor and memory of Max Mallory, who died at age 22 from testicular cancer. I'm your host, Joyce Lofstrom, a young adult and adult cancer survivor, and Max's mom. So this is Joyce, and I'm glad you could join us today. This is to our listeners. And my guest today is Tim Buckland, and Tim is a cancer survivor and has graciously agreed to be with me today to tell his story and more about what he's doing in life. So, Tim, thanks so much for joining me. Glad to be here. So, you know, I always like to start out with just tell us about your cancer journey and what happened and when and anything you'd like to share. That sounds good. Yeah, it's been a while since I recounted this, so we'll see if I get it all right. About a week before my 18th birthday, I was diagnosed with testicular cancer. And in the true fashion of being diagnosed that early, I didn't really know what that meant. So I went through a surgery, and then I went through three years of surveillance. And at the time, I was playing quite competitive golf and quite competitive hockey. And it kind of derailed me on on those things. But effectively, I was at university and kind of continued on with my life. There wasn't a huge impact in me being diagnosed. And I really just wanted to kind of put it behind me. And three years down the road, I was cancer-free and ready to move on. And then six months after that, I was diagnosed a second time with a new new form of testicular cancer and had a surgery and then was diagnosed a third time, which is, as you can imagine, fairly rare, but yeah, it, it all kind of changed very quickly and overnight. So after the third diagnosis, the cancer had spread. The CT scan had shown it in my lymph nodes in my back. And I ended up going through chemotherapy, hetopicide and cisplatin, which is kind of the standard protocol up here in Canada for, yeah, 12, 12 individual treatments or four rounds of, of treatment. And That really kind of took me to the end of that initial phase of being diagnosed with cancer, but it certainly kind of changed the way that I look at the world now. So yeah, I'll kind of leave it at that, but that's kind of where my cancer journey took me. So I guess I have a couple of questions. And Absolutely. So you were 18, so you Canadian school, but, you know, it, just at the end of what we, in America, it's high school, but that, that end of your education. So... I guess I'm perplexed a little bit that you had the diagnosis, had the surgery, and everything was okay for three years. And mm-hmm. it just it, anything you can share with that? I mean, they, I guess they felt they had it. They got it. Yeah. Well, so in fact, they did, right? So they did the full surgery and they followed me and my markers never went up. And three years of surveillance is is sufficient generally to determine if somebody's cancer-free. And I was. But after those three years, just remarkably happenstance, I ended up having a new cancer, like it was in the other um, other anatomy that I had left, right? right so right. that was that was the the really kind of surprising part is I didn't even think you could get it again, let alone within you know within five years. So. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so you've been through all of that, which is I guess quite a bit. It's just, that's an understatement from my part. But so just talk a little bit about you got through it all. You had the two surgeries. And so just what next? What happened then? So, yeah. (laughs) 
So it's, it's interesting, right? So you kind of come to the end of really your sole focus at that point. So I was in school and I was, I was taking biology at the time. And after finishing treatment, I'm like, you know what? I really want to understand more about the disease that has impacted my life so much. So I kind of switched majors at that point and focused on biochemistry because I wanted to learn about cancer. And really, I went to my master's program, the University of Alberta, focused on oncology or on cancer. I focus on breast cancer because really funding wise, that's one of the easier places to land. But yeah, like my entire focus switched to trying to understand why this had happened to me and and how I could help others. And that's really kind of the direction I've gone since then. Really, the focus has changed from, you know, focusing on myself and understanding my own situation to trying to help others going through similar situations. So well, I should back up a little bit too, and let our listeners know of your your academic expertise. Because I, well, I've read about you know that you are a scientist. You studied, as you mentioned, biology, and then switched to biochemistry, and then did some research, which mm-hmm. I can just find so uh, commendable because it's an area that needs research: testicular cancer and breast cancer. And I think yeah. Biochemistry, the little bit that I have taken it, which is not much, but <laughs> I always wanted to be a dietitian and I couldn't get sure. through the science. But the biochemistry to me is fascinating what you learn about the body and how it works and everything. So, can you talk just a little bit about some of the research you did and then we can move on? But I just think yeah. it's fascinating that you could do that. I'll try and keep this as interesting as possible, but <laughs> I worked on triple negative breast cancer. And really my my master's thesis was trying to understand why well, it happenstance. It wasn't really the point of me going into this lab, but why young adults with triple negative breast cancer had worse outcomes than everybody else. And yeah, so my work really focused on a very specific protein called BAD, but really the, the bigger part of it was understanding why these people had had worse outcomes. So it was very interesting to learn that side of it. I've tried to apply it to pretty much everything I've done since then. Okay. Uh, So very practical research then in terms of people who are dealing with that disease. You know, know, it's, it's surprising too. I've talked with a couple of, well, one young adult who manages Lacuna Loft, you might know that group, mm-hmm. but, you know, and just the number of young adults in the country, in our, the North America, I'll say, with, yeah. with cancer. I mean, there are many more than we realized, at least I realized. Yeah, the statistic back, I don't know how many years ago, but it was about 70,000 Americans and about 7,000 Canadians that are young adults that are diagnosed with cancer. With cancer, yeah. Yeah, so on an annual basis, that's a ton of people, and it just grows every year, right? So... So I know you reached out too to the organizations that are in in Canada for young adults yeah. with cancer. Can you talk a little bit about those groups and how they helped you and what you did and that totally? Yeah, yeah. I I've been involved with a number of organizations in the province or the state for Americans. We have the Canadian Cancer Society, which is similar to your American Cancer Society. It's kind of a national organization that does advocacy. And I had started a young adult group through them when I worked there. I worked there for three years as a fundraiser right after my master's program. And then I had worked with Young Adult Cancer Canada. I don't know a similar organization (laughs) in the U.S. Like there's Stupid Cancer, which is a huge organization in the U.S., 
but yeah, Young Adult Cancer Canada is kind of like an advocacy and support program. And I, I learned a lot through them, just working with other young adults and, you know, kind of getting your feet under you. Because after you get kicked out of treatment, as I like to say, launched back into the real world, it's really tough to talk to people your same age about what you've been through. So Young Adult Cancer Canada really gave me a platform to express myself and talk to other young adults about their situation. And you find out that you're obviously not alone. And I certainly didn't know the statistics back then on the sheer number of people that were diagnosed. But yeah, it is is a lot of people every year that you get to meet. So, And then from there, I kind of took some of my educational background and I, I worked partially with the Cancer Knowledge Network. So the Cancer Knowledge Network, again, is education source for people looking for information on types of cancer or specific topics for cancer. So for young adults, often that's a fertility thing or a vocational educational piece, and they're able to tailor kind of their audience or tailor information to their audience, I should say in a way that I really enjoyed. And editing articles from people of all different backgrounds was also very, very interesting. So, yeah. And then, I guess, years, years later, I worked for the Alberta Cancer Foundation as a program investment person. So, that was taking my scientific background and selecting specific research projects, and which is kind of what I do now in some some respect. But, uh, yeah, it's it's been kind of a weird in and out of science, but always kind of keeping my my hand on the pulse of the scientific world just because it was so important to me back then and it's something I find incredibly fascinating. So I find it interesting, Tim, that that you were able to coordinate, combine, integrate, whatever verb we want to use, but your scientific sure. background and then related to cancer and young adults with cancer. And I think it's yeah. it says a lot that you I guess, A, wanted to do it, but then B, that you did do it and could do it to help others, you know, in Canada with the work that you're doing. Yeah. Well, to be perfectly honest, a lot of it was luck. <laughs> okay. I think I get that too. <laughs> yeah. Like I obviously had the passion to do these things, but I ended up finding these opportunities that I don't think normally people would just run into, right? So even my position now, I'm the only cancer specialist in the entire government of Alberta. And yeah, I was just very, very fortunate to get the position I did. So kind of being in the right place at the right time, I totally, guess. So. Yeah, as opposed to being in the wrong place with my diagnosis. So yeah. <laughs> it's kind of nice to have it go full circle. <laughs> yes, yes, it is. That's a good way to look at it. Yeah. So what was your biggest challenge through all these years of treatment or time of dealing with it? Yeah, it you know, obviously the treatment is is something I look back on and and see it as being the most difficult, but I think there's a there's a point after treatment for us that are I'm going to say lucky enough to survive that you're very alone in the world. And that's where those organizations I had mentioned really kind of bridge you. So there was a two or three year stretch where I I decided that I was fine and I was moving past it and it was behind me, not realizing the the psychological and physical impact that it had on my life. So that's the part that I think is kind of undersold in the world that, you know, this does change you and there are things that need to be done to actually support these people. So that's the part that I found the hardest. I'm not sure if that's the same for everybody, but... 
Yes, I've talked to other young adults with cancer, testicular cancer, and that was what they said was, you know, being alone or who could they talk to that had been through a similar experience. So I think it's very common feeling, universal feeling. Yeah, yeah, I. it seems to be anyway. So you mentioned that you were in school when you were first found out. Yeah. Were you able to continue to go to school or did the treatment interrupt? And I'm only asking that because that might be interesting to some of the listeners who may have to go through some of the yeah. similar types of treatment. Yeah. So I'll, I'll take it all the way back to when I was 18. So the surgery itself took me out of school for a certain amount of time because I need to recover. And I also took me out of hockey and really later in that year, golf. So that by itself changed my trajectory. I really just deferred school for one semester and took what we have up here as an accelerated program. So I was able to like collapse it back into a single year. But And then when I was 21 and diagnosed and I went through treatment, I, I stepped out of school for an entire semester. It was, yeah, that was based on the advice of my oncologist who's an excellent doctor and, and uh, gave uh, very, very good information for me to make that decision on. I just, I wouldn't have been able to do treatment the way that I did and go to school at the same time. That makes sense. Um, So I have a question that's, it's really a universal question for whatever part of the world you live in, but did you have trouble finding the right doctor to treat your cancer? Was it easy to find either a urologist or an oncologist, whoever you might have been with, with this specialty? And I'm only asking because I think for some listeners, it might be challenging to know where to go for treatment. Yeah, I would say that we're very fortunate in Canada and especially in Alberta to have the medical system that we do. Now, that doesn't mean that my situation was a walk in the park. Actually, being diagnosed was by far the hardest part. You have to kind of push primary care to get you into into the right diagnostic pathway. So getting ultrasounds and, and CT scans and all that fun stuff before you're actually diagnosed, that was by far the hardest part. Getting referred to a urologist and a, a urological surgeon and then on to an oncologist was it, it took more time than I would have liked. I'm sure it takes more time than anybody would like, but but overall, the the path was fairly clear for me. So, yeah, I, I can certainly understand how how scary that is to not have that next line of of oncology and and urology. But yeah, for me, I was I was fortunate to have that set up. Okay, that's good. Good to know. Mm-hmm. And I think the thing I learned with my son's testicular cancer as well. I mean, I am a cancer survivor too. So you really have to do some research and who's out there and what are the specialty specialties they have. And I think one thing about surgeries, like Max had the RPL and D surgery, which is a common surgery for this disease. And, you know, there were some surgeons who are, have done, you know, hundreds of those surgeries and others who haven't. And I think just that kind of information is knowing who you have to find that you're comfortable with and, and can do the job. So Totally. Yeah. Yeah. We have, we have a similar situation up here where like, it's a little different, I think, just because of how we're set up. Like we don't go out and, and select our surgeons, I guess is probably the best way of putting it. it. They're kind of given to you in a way, but you're right. Like finding these specialty 
surgeons or oncologists or whoever is it takes research and it takes a lot of mental strain right on people that already have a lot on their plates so that that for me is one of the hardest things to see is these patients that really just can't give anymore and they're forced to do this research on their own you're right and it almost becomes a full-time job and when you're trying to find the right doctor and know what to do so uh good to know though that that you had that and and maybe the system the way it works in canada the other question i have which just came out of a recent interview that I did, and sure. I just wondered what your experience was growing up. And this young man who is a testicular cancer survivor said that his pediatrician had emphasized that he needed to do self-exams <laughs> once a month and to you know double-check every month to see yeah. if there was anything different. And I wish we had had that, although Max's cancer was not from a, a lump. But my, I guess my question is, did, did you have that experience with, with the doctor growing up? Did anybody encourage you? Well, it's really interesting. So I would say that my doctor was not. However, I've been very fortunate to have medical, let's call them professionals, uh, family members around me my entire life that have helped me with that sort of thing. So my my mom being a nurse was the one that really pushed me to check myself. And that was the reason why I was diagnosed in the first place, I think. So it wasn't really a, a push from our medical system necessarily, but more of a family connection that I'm very fortunate to have. That's wonderful. Yeah. yeah. That's so you found it yourself, the yeah. lump. Okay. Yeah, you bet. Right. And just um, on that note, Joyce, I want to say that it's interesting throughout the world. So when I was younger and researching this all the time, one of the big pushes out of the United Kingdom was that this was emasculating, that doing self-exams was was not the right thing to do for people because of the, the rate, right? So the rate's so low for testicular cancer that you're really just putting people in, through an anxiety-ridden kind of procedure that they do on a weekly or however often they do it. And I find that, especially as somebody going through that, just kind of a ridiculous statement and that this can be so beneficial to people. So I would definitely advocate for people to do it. However, it's often left up to the individual to find that information themselves. So that's the unfortunate part. You know, I, I'm glad you mentioned that, uh, Tim, because there's a similar group in the U.S., which I don't have right in front of me, but sure. it's a task force. That's It's not a government task force, but it's a group, and their recommendation is the same. It's that the incidence at the time this was written, which was 2011, sure. the incidence is so low that it's not a good idea for anyone to do it, for yeah. the patient, for doctors, nurses, anyone. And I'm just, I read this. And I was like, oh, my God, who came up with this? <laughs> I mean, you know, yeah. I, I, you just so much of, of patient care and maintaining your health is because you advocate for yourself yeah. and you take care of your health. And I understand there may be reasons why people don't want to do it. But I anyway, I'm 100 percent with you, Tim. I think yeah. you have to take that on and, and try to take care of yourself. That yeah. Way. So, you know, I think just knowing knowing your body, especially as a young adult, is important. And if you if you just take those steps, you're going to be in so much better position than if you don't. So maybe the actual testicular self exam isn't the right thing, but just understanding if things change, however however that's done, I think that's really the most important part. So, 
Yeah, I would agree. It's it's very personal, and each each person can figure out the best way for him to do that. So, so I think I I don't think I asked you this, but we've talked a little bit about some of the challenges. Did you have any kind of there's a challenge when you hear the diagnosis and you heard it three different times, but I mean, what went through your mind? What was, what was the challenge? I guess maybe it was a different each time that you had to deal with this. Yeah. Well, so the first time for sure was the worst and it wasn't, it wasn't that it was delivered poorly. It was delivered very directly, but my response was to pretty much faint. I almost did. And I think that shock level is just, expected for somebody to not expect cancer to happen and and then to have it dropped on you all of a sudden so you know the the second and third time were as funny as it sounds more more expected i knew i knew something had changed i knew what had happened the first time and anytime there was a change i knew kind of what was going on even if i want to be a little naive and and protect myself from actually thinking that was the case but you you always had the the suspicion that you were going to be diagnosed again so yeah it was definitely the first time it was the hardest for me how about I'm going to get away from cancer for a moment because sure. <laughs> I I was also very impressed with your your sports prowess and I read an article and listened to a podcast that you had done too. But tell me about your golf. You sound like yeah. a, a, an aficionado with golf, and I mean I mean it sincerely. Yeah. You were an outstanding. I guess still are an outstanding player. So yeah, golf is such an interesting sport because it's one of those sports where. It's such a mental game and I use it really, especially my third diagnosis and treatment to like get through it. Right. So I, yeah, like being, being, you know, fairly good at golf is uh, one part of it, but just the sport itself gave me so much during that time. Yeah. Like I, I ended up playing in a couple of fairly large tournaments after that. And I have a two-year-old daughter, so she's taking me off the golf course now, but yeah, I, I love the game. And if I get on the course as much as possible, I certainly would. Oh, that's great. Well, congrats on your daughter. That's Thank wonderful you. to know. Um, yeah, I think I tried to learn golf and I, I started later in life, probably late 40s. And I, I really liked it. But man, I could not get the eye hand coordination. <laughs> I just, you know, I, I didn't practice enough, but sure. it's a great game. Yeah. You know, so, and I'm left handed. So I had one pro say use or golf with your left hand and a different one say golf with your right hand. <laughs> To make it as easy as possible for you, right? right? <laughs> yeah. So I wound up trying to learn being a left-handed golfer, but I do think it's a wonderful game. Yeah. So that's great. So uh, another question is, and you've kind of answered it, but you know, you talked about the biggest challenge. How about what's changed in your life philosophically and how you approach things? What's what changed? Yeah, I think it's, it's kind of an interesting trajectory, right? So when you're 17, 18, you're you're very invincible. And that's kind of when I lost all that very quickly. So my my mindset changed very quickly too on, on less about myself and more about helping others. So as you can see from my career trajectory, it's been very much on trying to find the best place for me to help other people. And that's really philosophically what I, what I um, hang on to as much as possible. Because I think that's where my perspective and my experience really has the greatest impact is on seeing and, you know, my, my position has broadened as I've gone through the years, but seeing the health impact 
on people and and how that how the decisions we make at a policy level or at a not for profit or research level how those actually impact people. So that's kind of how my philosophy's changed since I was seventeen or eighteen. You know, I think the the point on policy is important. I don't think all of us anywhere understand the impact of policy and what that can do to life, yeah. any portion of life. And it's it's good, A, to understand it, understand what policy is and does, and then B, like you're doing, if there is something that you want to change or update or whatever the word might be, mm-hmm. is to, to get involved to try to do that and to understand how that can impact people. Um, yeah. So... Yeah, I think that's wonderful. That because you were the government now in Alberta, is that right? That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's an incredible lever that we can use. It's just it's limited to a certain number of people and a certain number of voices that can actually shape it. So, yeah, getting the opportunity to do so and and having uh, that kind of impact on on society as a whole is is actually really remarkable and and uh, something I enjoy doing for sure. And I don't think people realize, too, sometimes how getting involved even at your local level, mm-hmm. like you mentioned, a nonprofit. So maybe there's a, a cancer organization in the town or in the state or the province where you live. Or is there some way you can volunteer with a certain group just to help them, you know, help cancer patients? So or whatever area. I mean, I've done that with diabetes. I have diabetes and have volunteered over time i mean it's been a couple well it's been two decades since i've done it but you know it was important you know i did that and it was really helpful um to me and i enjoyed being involved and i i just think it's wonderful that you can do that and continue to do it so yeah for sure so you've kind of told us but what any more about what you're doing now you're working with the the cancer work that you're doing and your family and yeah, all those fun things that take up all the time. But yeah, it's, it's funny. So my my role when I was hired in the government of Alberta was really as a cancer expert and as a cancer research expert in particular. And that position, especially with COVID being as big of a problem as it is, has been expanded. And now I do research advocacy and we do a lot of vetting of new technologies. So new diagnostics and new treatments for COVID or anything else that comes through the province. So that's been very interesting, but yeah, on a family level, we get the little one running around wreaking havoc in my house. So that's always <laughs> fun. And yeah, that, that by itself has been a huge change. And I think philosophically, I think I'm even more socially conscious now that I've had her than I was before. So. Yes, I think that happens when we have children. <laughs> it, it does, you know, it's a normal transition. Yeah, you see, you kind of see the future then, right? Before it's it's less about less about what's happening in generations past you and more about what's happening currently. And when you see the little ones growing up, it's kind of changes your frame of mind. That's very good uh, synopsis. You're right. So my last question is any advice you have for young men who think they might have testicular cancer, or maybe they're going through treatment now, or their caregivers, any advice you would want to give? Yeah, there's lots. Okay, good. <laughs> well, I think I think it depends on where you are. So if you're suspecting testicular cancer, if anything has changed, getting it checked is very important. The, the statistics on if, if something has changed in that area and whether or not you have testicular c- cancer, it 
it almost always means that you have testicular cancer. So that that's something that you should go and get checked out first and foremost. For people that are going through treatment, I would say that there is an end to the well, the end of the tunnel there. Getting out of treatment is is kind of a very important step, but there's also the next phase. So I would say once you're done treatment, think about organizations that can support you. And then for people that are taking care of testicular cancer patients, like I, I, I have never really been in that position. However, my girlfriend at the time and then became my wife, one of the greatest things that she did was really just listening and as, as not even silly, but as, you know, kind of out, out there that the comments I would have about treatment or the world or whatever, she was definitely a sounding board for me. So I have... I have the utmost respect for what she was able to do for me and for anybody that's helping a cancer patient through that. I like that advice on listening. I think sometimes caregivers, and they do listen, but it's also you want to talk and help. And sometimes you just, the, the patient needs someone just to sit there and be with them and listen, like you say. Yeah. So. yeah. And in particular right now, especially with COVID happening and people not having the breaks that they need, caregivers need to take care of themselves too. And I think that is often missed. And then you get caregiver burnout and people just not feeling as well as they should, not being able to support the people as well as they should because they haven't taken care of themselves. So that'd be the other thing I would add to that. I agree. That's a great way to end our discussion. So, so Tim, I really appreciate that you took time to join me today and share your story and help our listeners with some of the advice that you've been able to share. So thank you and hope to have you back sometime down the road to talk about more about your research and what you're doing. So. Absolutely. That sounds excellent. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining me today on Don't Give Up on Testicular Cancer from the Max Mallory Foundation. We have a website and it's at maxmalloryfoundation.com where you can learn more about testicular cancer donate, and also send your ideas for guests on the podcast. And for spelling, Mallory is M-A-L-L-O-R-Y. Please join me next time for Don't Give Up on Testicular Cancer.